Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Back in the 2008 financial crisis, when words and phrases entered our lexicon like housing bubble and too big to fail, we learned over the course of many months that a scandal, the scale of which was nearly too big to comprehend, had taken place. All over the news were alien jargon like subprime mortgages and synthetic collateralized debt obligations, and it was enough to make your head spin, and it made a lot of people's heads spin. Pundits were scrambling to tell some kind of coherent story about what happened. What happened is basically this. Mortgages have historically, going back decades and decades, been very reliable loans for banks. I mean, who wants to get kicked out of their house because they didn't pay their mortgage? And because of this, banks would bundle these loans into investment um, things called securities, highly rated investment pieces. And these securities were considered safe investments, either to invest in directly or to bet on. And because of the supposed reliability of these investments, uh, this business of dealing in mortgage-backed securities became a huge industry. And the lenders who were selling the initial mortgages soon had incentive to sell more and more of these mortgages into the securities. And so they made worse and worse loans and wrote mortgages that were less and less reliable, and they sold them up the ladder just the same. Pretty soon, these subprime mortgages, that is terrible, unreliable mortgage loans, were making up the majority of these securities that were still getting labeled as AAA, very safe. And so this whole house of cards started falling down as soon as those terrible mortgages started failing, and the ripples went all the way up through the highly rated securities and ultimately to the bottom lines of the major banks that owned most of them. But as this game started ending, the banks caught holding all of this debt somehow managed to wiggle out of their accountability. In the end, only one Wall Street executive was tried and convicted for his part in concealing how much his employee, his employer, owed. His name was Kareem Sarajeldin. He was sentenced to 30 months in prison for his part in a cover-up about the, the amount of debt that his um, company had. And as the New York Times reported it at the time, on that November morning, the judge seemed almost torn. Sarah Jeldon lied about the value of his bank's securities. That was a crime, of course. But other bankers had behaved far worse. Sarah Jeldon's former employer, for one, had revised its past financial statements to account for $2.7 billion that should have been initially reported. Lehman Brothers, AIG, Citigroup, Countryride, and many others also admitted that they were in much worse shape than they initially showed. Merrill Lynch, in particular, announced a loss of nearly $8 billion three weeks after claiming that it was only $4.5 billion. So after lying about what they had done, how much they had lost, and then applying pressure to the right places in the government, 
the lenders, banks, and other culpable institutions ended up receiving a massive bailout from the government. A recent assessment from MIT pegs the total bailout at $498 billion. That, in 2008, was a modern enactment of the exact parable that Jesus tells in today's gospel. In it, at a much smaller scale, a wormy little financial manager, called a steward in the gospel, looks like he's about to get his comeuppance. But he, like the Wall Street banks, doctors the books and makes under-the-table deals with the right people to assure that he'll be taken care of after the crisis. In his case, after realizing that the game is up, he runs off to all the people who owe his master money, and in the few remaining seconds before he loses his own authority, he helps them all to forge loans to make it look like they owe less. This ingratiates him to all of them and assures that he's owed some favors when he's kicked out of his job. It was a clever plan, and when it gets back to his former boss, even he admits that it was clever. Even Jesus, it seems, admits that it was clever. Is Jesus condoning what this guy did in the story? He even says to his disciples, the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Ouch. Thanks, Lord. He continues, and I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that is, unrighteous money, that when ye fail, you may they may receive you into everlasting habitations. What in the world does this mean? What is this lesson that Jesus is trying to, to spin almost out of the, a story that he tells? Use unrighteous money to get into heaven? That's what it sounds like. And it is a tough lesson. Uh, and there's a reason this particular gospel passage is often skipped over. Even in the uh, American 1928 Episcopal Book of Common Prayer that keeps the vast majority of the old traditional lectionary, it swaps out this gospel for the parable of the prodigal son today. The compilers couldn't handle it. And it's understandable. Listen again to the way the translation that we just heard puts it. Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. It sounds like make friends with dirty money. More modern translations can help us out just a little bit more, though. The RSV, for example. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon. Okay, still slightly confusing, but crucially, what Jesus is actually saying becomes a little more clear. It's not the money itself that's supposed to become our friend, but rather we're to use this money to make certain friends, just like the slimy money manager did when he forged those loans and made friends with all of the people out there who owed his boss money. But instead of making friends out of clients or friends in high places in the government who can give you a bailout, for example, which friends are Jesus telling us to make? The ones who will, quote, receive us and welcome us into the eternal habitations. The saints and angels are the friends we're to make. But how in the world are we supposed to make friends with saints and angels using dirty money, the mammon of unrighteousness, Jesus calls it? Here we could potentially enter into the fraught landscape of Christian ethics and modern economics, which scares the daylights out of me, so I'm not going to touch that. 
The route I'm going to take this morning is to look at this from, I think, the more essential perspective, which is to say the core lesson here is about what motivates us and our level of effort. So the money manager in the parable, and for the people in the 2008 debacle uh, that cost our government $5 billion, the thing that uh, motivated them was power and comfort. And those motivators propelled them to act in extremely clever ways to put an admirable effort and energy both in the amassing of their ill-gotten wealth and in the effort to avoid responsibility. You become filthy rich and then convince the government to forgive you billions of debt, not by being lazy. That takes real effort. So if the power and comfort motivated them to such effort and use of their cleverness, does the advancement of the kingdom of heaven motivate us to the same degree or effort and clever application of our intelligence? Does a desire to alleviate the suffering of those in need inspire us to use our resources wisely in that pursuit? Does the zeal for the worship of the true and living God make us want to invest in the beautification and building up of his church? I'm asking you these questions because, frankly, I stand condemned with the disciples who Jesus accuses of being not as wise as the children of the world. His disciples, the children of the sons of light, are less wise, less effort and cleverness is employed by them in their pursuits than the children of the world in their same generation were using in their pursuits. And I'm in the same place. I consider myself a son of light, but, you know, honestly, are my efforts um, worthy of my values? Am I doing enough to work toward the goals that I profess to have? I do want to make friends with the saints and angels, but honestly, my efforts leave a whole lot to be desired very often. So maybe this parable is a wake-up call when Jesus contrasts us so starkly with those who, in terrible pursuits, yet demonstrate themselves to be extremely clever. Maybe today's a good day to double down and to actually start making plans. What do we value? Then, what are we doing to pursue those values? Today, let's not only be hearers of this word, but also doers. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.